0: we're going to do right now is we're going to get into uh, God's Word, the Gospel of Mark. So if you guys wouldn't mind opening your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, Chapter 2 is where we're at. And as soon as you guys open to that, um, I want to kind of give you guys a little bit of a background as to what we're going to be doing this evening. Uh, We're going to be studying a passage in the Gospel of Mark in which Mark actually talks about Jesus. And he uses a phrase or a statement that really identifies what Jesus' purpose um, in the region of Galilee was all about and ultimately in the world was all about. That Jesus makes a statement about really purpose, what he's doing here. He says, I've come uh, to seek and save the lost. I've come not for those that are righteous or those who think that they have no need for any help or assistance. Jesus says, I've come to actually help those who know they're sick, who know they have need of assistance. I'm here for them. So what we're going to see basically today with regard to Jesus in this little passage is Jesus actually has a mission. He gives a mission statement, what his life is all about. This is very important for us as a church. If you've been here for any amount of time, you know that mission is actually very important for us as a church. Oftentimes, historically, the church has been identified as having missions, and we are very much interested in missions. We love missions. We support missionaries. We support people who go on the mission field. But oftentimes what ends up happening is we tend to think of missions as being something you do over a summer. You do by engaging, you know, the world. You go across an ocean. You go across a border. You go uh, engage another type of context or a culture. And that is missions. Like I said, we support that. We're all into that. But even before that, there is this idea where we are all called to be missionaries. That Jesus was a missionary. Jesus actually represented God. What a missionary really is, is he somebody or she is somebody that represents a home country or represents something. And he's going there as an ambassador and sharing something about that home country. That's what Jesus was. Jesus came from heaven to earth to share with people what heaven is about or what God is like so that people would trust and so that people would believe in God. That's Jesus's primary calling, Jesus's primary goal. Later on, towards the end of Jesus' life, he gathered his disciples together. And he says, as the Father sent me, so I send you now into the world. So Jesus was a missionary sent into this world. Jesus grabbed his disciples and likewise sent them into the world. And therefore, we see ourselves as our church and our mission, our goal is that we have a mission. Our mission is to really lead, at the end of the day, lead people to Jesus. That's our mission, to find people that recognize that they have need of God in their life to introduce them to Jesus so again like I said for some that is to go into another culture another context for some that is to cross an ocean or go into a place where they speak a foreign language for others it's that you go into the day-to-day grind at work for others it means that you go into the dorms for others it means you cross you know the street which you live on you go out and you meet your neighbors you engage in social activities and ways in which You can engage other people around you. All of us have this sphere of influence. People that we know. People that we are in contact with. And the reality is, is that many of the people that we know will never set foot into a church. They don't want to go to church. They're not interested in going to church. For them, there's a lot of misconceptions as to what church is all about. But they will listen to you. They will meet with you. They'll have coffee with you. They'll come into your house. You can go into their house. You have relationship with these people. That's what I'm talking about. That's what missionary work is all about. And that seems to be the type of missionary that Jesus was. Not so much crossing an ocean, but Jesus did leave the culture of heaven to come into the culture of earth. And Jesus learned the culture. Jesus learned how to be a good missionary to communicate to people. Jesus not, never left beside or left aside his holiness. He always was holy, but he learned how to be effective communicating to other people the need for God's power and God's grace in their life. That's the type of people that we want to be. That's the type of thing that we'll be taking a look at. Now, what I want to say very quickly is that actually, the question is not, are you a missionary? More rightly, the question is, what type of missionary are you? The reality is is that all of us are some form of missionary. Meaning, what I mean by that is we have some sort of driving passion or some sort of desire that really rules over us, that drives us that compels us. We're motivated by I'll give you a couple examples of things that I was thinking about. For example, over the past several weeks, if you've watched the news at all or read any type of headlines on the internet, you've realized that for the past two months, there have been thousands, hundreds of thousands of missionaries on Wall Street and Sacramento and all sorts of areas around our country. These are missionaries, people who have a mission, people who have a goal. They're motivated by something to occupy Wall Street. Their mission, in short, is to stick it to the man. That's their goal. I'm not sure how effective it was, but that was their goal nonetheless. At some point, I think maybe even their mission got a little bit degraded and it lost some sort of momentum. I think it may even be over at this particular point. But what you saw was thousands of people with a mission. Their mission was to somehow stick it to the man. There are other people that are on some sort of a mission. They are environmentalists. Sometimes these are radical missionaries. They have a very great, strong desire to live in an eco-friendly life. They drive cars that are eco-friendly. They use recycled bags. They do all sorts of things. They shop at Trader Joe's. They wear hemp. They do all sorts of things that some of us would look at and not want to do, but the reality is this is how they live. They have a desire. They are on a mission. They're willing to make certain sacrifices. They're willing to spend X amount of money and do certain things in order to live according to that mission. Does that make sense? Uh, moms with brand newborns are evangelists that are on a mission, all right? If you know any moms that have a brand new child that's under age six months, uh, you know that their pulpit happens to be Facebook. They post pictures of their little child. They say all sorts of crazy things about their kids because they're evangelists evangelizing the good news of their little child. They are missionaries. They have a mission. They want the world to know the greatness of their little child. And they'll blog about it, state about it, do everything, all right? The reality is that all of us, to some degree, have some sort of mission. And perhaps one of the greatest missionaries of all are Mac owners, all right? If you own a Mac, Mac evangelists, if you own a Mac, you know that you have a far superior computer to anybody else that has a PC. And so these types of people tend to publicize that. They want the world to know how great Macintoshes are. And they want everybody to know how wonderful MacBook Pros and whatnot are. And the reality is, that's a mission. That's some form of a mission because they're living with this driving passion. The reality is, no one looks at these types of things as overarching drives or passions in their life. Some of them do. But the point that I'm making is this. Is that all of us have some sort of mission. All of us live with some sort of master driving passion that guides us, that directs us, that leads us, that compels us. That thing that compels us, that leads us, that drives us We call that our mission. Jesus had a mission. There was an overriding drive in his life. There was a desire, something that compelled him, something that drove him. We see that same type of element in the life of Paul the Apostle. Paul says, it's the love of Christ that compels me. Paul, what was your mission? Jesus. I love Jesus. I want others to meet Jesus. That was Paul's mission. The reality is, is that that's what we see with Jesus. That's what Jesus calls his church into being And mission work is not just simply crossing an ocean, it's the way that we live our life. So with that, what I want to take a look at tonight is Jesus had this mission, but Jesus' mission really had certain elements that become very obvious within his life. And we'll see those things sort of unfold within the story. So we'll take a look at three of those things tonight. Before we jump into those, I want to pray and then we'll get to work taking a look at these three ways in which Jesus' mission really was very well seen in his life so let's pray and then we'll get to work god we need your help tonight Uh, we need your wisdom to be given to us and lord what we need is your spirit to speak to our hearts and to open our eyes to allow us to be able to see the things that so oftentimes we put our hands to the see the things that we oftentimes are driven by are led by some of the things that we're driven by and led by and compelled by are shallow They're not long-lasting. They're not long-term. They have expiration dates on them. So, Father, we want to make certain that our lives are anchored to, built upon things that last forever, just like Jesus did. So we pray, God, especially if there are, are those of us here tonight that claim to be followers of Jesus, that we would make certain that the things that drive us, the things that we would consider as the mission of our life, are consistent with the mission that Jesus had. If there's those here tonight, God, that don't know you, that you would open their eyes, that you would help them to see that you actually invite people to be on that same mission. That's life-giving, that's life-transforming. So we want to respond to you tonight in that proper way. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Three things that we'll take a look at. First of all, is that Jesus' mission really defined his relationships. Jesus' mission to find his relationships. This is really interesting to me as you look at this. Because any mission that anybody's on actually has different types of relationships that are guided by that mission. i will talk about that more in a second. But this becomes very evident and very clear with regard to Jesus. The types of people that Jesus spent his time with, the types of people that Jesus called to be a part of his inner circle are, are really interesting. It's kind of an interesting case study in like building a group of people like You would not normally choose the type of people that Jesus chose if your objective is anything other than the objective that Jesus had chosen. We'll take a look at that. But take a look at verse 13. It says this in chapter 2. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. By this time, Jesus was sort of in full-time itinerant preaching ministry. He was going around uh, preaching the gospel. People were following Jesus. He was doing miracles. He was touching lepers, healing them. He was touching those that were sick and afflicted with demons. People were following Jesus. They wanted to be a part of what Jesus was doing. They wanted to be a part of his ministry and wanted to be a part of the work that he was bringing down. And it goes on to say in verse 14, it says, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. A lot of scholars believe that this guy, Levi, son of Alphaeus, was actually none other than uh, Matthew, the actual author of the first gospel in our New Testaments, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that most scholars believe that that's who this guy was. So prior to Matthew actually following Jesus, uh, he had a vocation that was considered a tax collector. Now, if you are a first century reader of this book, let's say, for example, you, know, you lived in another city. And uh, you weren't there, you didn't see Jesus, but you were just reading the story about Jesus. You read this story about Jesus calling Levi, who happens to be a tax collector. You would actually read this and think, that's kind of scandalous. Wow, Jesus called a tax collector. Now, if you were there with Jesus, walking with Jesus, and you saw Jesus actually call uh, Levi to follow him, you would think that's scandalous. I'll tell you a little bit about tax collectors because for the most part in our culture, the way that we hear this, it just doesn't really resonate with us. We don't really think too much about this. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't come across to us as offensive or scandalous as it would have for them. So I want to kind of paint a little bit of a picture for you as to who tax collectors were. Basically, several years before Jesus was born, what happened was the region of Judea became occupied by the Roman government. Uh, Rome took over, uh, and they basically set up these little vassal kingdoms. And uh, when Rome took over, not only did they build road structures or road systems all throughout Israel, they also set up little uh, provinces or little uh, regencies and little districts. And these little regencies or districts would have been governed by kind of a a procurator or some sort of a leader that represented um, Rome. Now, the Jews hated the occupation, all right? They hated the occupation, And the reality is, uh, you would imagine if you lived in, let's say, for example, here in America, um, if the Canadians came down and they occupied America and they started making us all talk with A's and they started making the guys grow mullets, we would not like occupation from Canadians, all right? We would be offended by that. We would not want to live according to that. In a lot of ways, that's what happened with the Jews there in Judea. And when the Romans came in, basically began to occupy them. It was a horrible situation for them. On top of that, not only were they being occupied by a pagan society, a pagan group of people, they were also being forced to pay taxes. Now, in these little regencies, in these little districts, they would have little border areas. And so when you went from one regency or one district into another regency or district, you would cross this little border area on the roads that they had. So if you're traveling by road from one district to the next, it's kind of like a little border patrol, you would be then forced to kind of pay some sort of tax. Now, people hated the guys that worked the tax booth, right? They hated these people, right? Imagine that here you are, you have a family, you don't have a lot of money because you're kind of working in an agrarian culture, you don't have a lot of coin, but you do, what you might have is like corn or something like that. You're forced to pay. You don't like that. You don't even want Rome kind of governing over you. You're not interested in the Roman occupation. You just want your freedom back. But what you're forced to do now, every time you travel, and if you have to travel, you have to stop at this little toll booth, this tax booth, and pay some sort of tax. So to add insult to injury, guess who's working this job? A Jew. (laughs) A Jew. We we know that because his name's Levi. Levi is a Jewish name. So Levi, this Jewish guy, is part of, you know, the people of Israel, kind of turned his back, sort of in betrayal on his own people, um, and he's working the toll booth. He's a type of guy, so the question is, do people like Levi? No. Everybody hates Levi. He's a type of guy that probably has a lot of money because the way they would work and the way they would get paid is they would oftentimes opt. They would kind of have some sort of lottery to see and figure out who can get the job and those who would end up getting the job because you ended up paying a lot of money to be able to get, try to uh, put your name in there to get the job. So if you got the job, let's say for example Rome just wanted 10%, all right, and you would oftentimes tax you know, 12%, 15%, whatever, so you would skim off the top. So you were actually living off of gouging your own countrymen all right so levi was a type of guy everybody hated all right it's a type of guy that nobody would have liked so uh peter james john all these guys that were fishermen that lived in that particular region that particular city they would have known who levi was he would have been that guy that no one would have ever wanted to talk to no one would ever to have had any type of relationship or spending time with you wouldn't stop and just chit chat with levi All right, you wouldn't be interested in that. If you had any conversation with them, you probably would say a dirty word to them. All right, because that's the type of relationship you have with this guy. You didn't like him. He betrayed your people. He was taking money from you, and you had no rights whatsoever to do anything about it because if you balked, if you fought, if you resisted, all, you know, Matthew had to do is kind of, and some sort of Roman guard would come by and force you to pay or take you away to some sort of prison. That was about it. So you had really no rights to be able to do anything. You were powerless and you essentially had to give Matthew and, or this guy Levi who was also Matthew this money in order to be able to, you know, so that he can live and then he'd pay Rome what he needed. So he was this type of guy that everybody would have hated. But it's ironic because Jesus actually calls Levi to himself. Not just so that Levi would be religious. Jesus actually befriends Levi. I mean, this is absolutely scandalous. But the reality, here's the point that I want to make. If Jesus' goal or his driving mission in life was to basically build up his ministry as an itinerant preacher to get popularity, to get people to like him, you don't go calling guys like Levi to join your club. You just don't do that. Because the reality is, is Peter, James, John, Andrew, all these guys that, you know, from chapter 1 that are already following Jesus. Right? These guys are fishermen. They're following Jesus. They're already on Jesus' team. These guys would have known Matthew. So what type of relationship would local fishermen have with a guy like a local tax collector? They would hate each other. But it's amazing to me because Jesus calls these two guys that are at polar opposites to be on the same team. You're going to love this about the church because that's what the church is. Someone defined the church as this. Natural born enemies who are redeemed and cleansed and washed to love each other. That's really what the church is. That by nature, a lot of us don't really have anything in common at all. By by normal terms, a lot of us would never spend any time at all with anybody else in this room. But here's what happens: Jesus, who normally wouldn't spend any time with us, calls us to be in friendship, in relationship with himself. And by being on Jesus' team, Jesus tends to assemble a bunch of people onto a team that really don't normally get along with each other in the natural sense. I want to play a little game with you, all right? This game is called Liabilities and Assets, all right? It's a little game that we're going to play. First, I want to tell you a little bit about liabilities and assets. Liability is something that you engage, something that you enter into. It could be a relationship, it could be a business situation, and you end up paying a lot of money or paying a lot of energy or a lot of time or a lot of substance, mental anguish into this particular thing. It's something that you know that if you're going to engage into it, you want to make certain that the benefits or the outcome are going to outweigh the expenses that go into it. Does that make sense? That's a liability, all right? And most of the time, liabilities end up taking a lot from you, taking a lot, a lot out of you. And a lot of times, you don't end up coming out on the positive end. all right. An asset, flip side, is something that if you are able to engage it, you know it's going to be a benefit to you. So the reality is, if you are in some sort of relationship and you're trying to build some sort of a, you know, some sort of business or build some sort of relationship with other people and you have a goal, this is your mission, you want to make certain that you make friends with the right people. So for example, you know, there's a lot of schmoozing around, people like to get in certain circles of friends because at the end of the day, depending upon what your mission is, what is driving you as a human being. You want to make sure that you make the right people, right friends. So, for example, if you're a musician, you would love to meet or hang out with a dude who's a producer, all right? Let's say if you, for example, are a young entrepreneur and you're like, I really want to start a business, you want to find an investor. You want to hang out with that person because that's an asset to you, all right? To have that type of person in your life, to meet with them, to mingle with them, to draw from them is going to be an asset to you, all right? We're going to play this game now, liabilities and assets. So here's what we're going to do. I want you I'm going to say some sort of vocation, some sort of uh, particular vocation, and then label certain types of people, and you'll tell me whether or not they're a liability or an asset. So let's say your mission in life is to be a politician. That's your goal. You hope to be elected by the people. you hope to have a, secure yourself a good job as a politician. So with that being said, as a politician, would an IRS agent be, as a friend, be a liability or an asset to you? Liability. You think so? could be a liability. Especially if it's an honest IRS agent. All right? If it's a dishonest IRS agent, he might actually be an asset to you. But for the most part, let's just assume it's an honest IRS agent that won't budge. All right? It's actually probably going to be a liability. All right. So let's say, good, you're a politician and on your political trail, you have your your meth head brother cruising around carrying a banner saying, elect my brother. Liability or asset? Right, yeah, liability. You probably don't want that guy following you around, even though he's your brother. You love him, but it'd be better for your brother to be at home where nobody can see him. All right. Yeah, obviously. So here you are, a politician. Liability or asset? Photograph of the prostitute. Yeah, liability. All right, just, just for the record, if you're a politician... You don't want to be caught downtown LA two o'clock in the morning with a prostitute hanging out of your car door. Those pictures don't go over well very good on in the press on Facebook. If your goal is to be uh, elected by the people as a politician, those types of relationships, hanging out with prostitutes, liabilities. All right. So what if you meet a rich guy? Liability or an asset? And he actually likes what you're all about. An asset. You want to hang with the guy, right? That's the type of guy. So. Here's another one. Let's say, for example, your goal is to be a school teacher. All right, you want to be a school teacher. Liability or asset? Uh, developing a friend with a pedophile. Yeah, liability. You don't want to be seen with that person, all right? Um, so you get the idea. I'll just stop right there. You, got, you get the idea. There are liabilities and there are assets with regard to whatever type of mission or goal you have in life. I want you to think about this. What type of people did Jesus hang out with? Everybody was a liability. he hung out with prostitutes. He hung out with the girl with the clear heels. That was the type of people Jesus spent time with. All right? Those are the ones that Jesus hung out with. He hung out with lepers, people that were unclean physically. He hung out with guys that were, you know, lepers morally, like this guy who was, you know, the tax collector. Jesus spent time with these guys. Jesus not only called them to enter into a rela- a religion, called them to enter into a relationship with himself. This is absolutely amazing because none of you live like that. I don't live like this. I mean, all of us can think of certain people in our mind where we're like, "Ah, I don't want to be seen with that person. I don't want to be caught dead with that person. I don't want my picture on Facebook to be floating around with that person or that minority, or that race, or that particular age group, or that particular person. We oftentimes have certain people in our life that we would mark out. We would say, I don't want to be with that person because they are a liability, and I cannot pay that price to be seen with that person. But it's amazing to me because Jesus hangs out with everybody who's nothing but a liability. And this has actually got Jesus into trouble because he's hanging out with a bunch of these people that everybody else would have written off that are completely demanding of him, Jesus hangs out with them. This is amazing to me. Because this is the type of ministry that Jesus is all about. This really, the mission of Jesus, defines the type of friendships he engages in. So if Jesus was coming to just merely be a good preacher, hanging out with a bunch of you know, prostitutes and tax collectors, was not the right decision for him, right? His PR campaign should have pulled him aside and just kind of scold him on that. But if Jesus was coming to be a Savior, then he was actually choosing and selecting the right people. If Jesus actually cared about people's souls, then he was hanging out with the right ones. It should say something to us about the types of relationships that we oftentimes have, because we oftentimes are very selective in the relationships that we have. We are very selective in the type of people that we'll choose to hang out with. But, again, all I'm simply saying is that oftentimes is, is that it just, it's a reflection of the type of mission that we're on. It really is. It just it merely reflects the type of mission or the type of life that we're actually on. Because we would look at other people in our lives and say, the liability, hanging out with that person, is too much of a price, too much of a cost that I'd have to pay. It's too expensive for me emotionally. It's too expensive for me personally. It's too expensive for me monetarily. There's no way that person, that relationship will actually tax too much out of me for me for, for its worth. But not so with Jesus. He's willing to hang out with these types of people. The second thing I want you to notice with regard to Jesus' mission is that it determined how and where he'd spend his time. It determined how and where he spent his time. Verse 15 uh, is really interesting to me. It goes on and says this, and as he reclined at the table in his house, referring to uh, Levi or Matthew's house, Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, and there were many who followed him. I like the way that the message uh, words this. It's not really my favorite translation, but I like the way it put it. It says in verse 29, Levi gave a large dinner at his home for Jesus, and everyone was there, tax men and other disreputable characters, as guests at dinner. I love that, because who were Matthew's friends? Like, who were the people that he hung out with? Assuming he had friends, I can't imagine he had a lot of friends, but he had a lot of acquaintances there were probably a lot of people that were afraid of the guy. So the people that Matthew hung out with probably weren't like chummy, good buddy-buddy friends. They were just people that kind of either feared him or they were part of kind of the same trade. They were the same type of disreputable people that uh, Matthew hung out with. But what happens is as soon as Matthew meets Jesus, he's transformed. Because in his mind, he's just like, everybody rejects me. And the only thing, the only words people ever say to me are four-letter words. And you actually call me to follow you. You're, everybody shows just great contempt towards me, but you actually speak to me with love. Everybody treats me as subhuman. You actually treat me like a human. Yeah, I'll follow you. Everybody treats me with, with no respect. You treat me with dignity. This is amazing what Jesus does to this guy. So the very first thing that Matthew does is he calls together all of his clan of people, all the people that he knows, writes them up on Facebook and says, we're having a party at my house tonight, and this guy who actually gave me dignity is going to be there. We show up, and everybody shows up, all these people. So in the community of Israel, the type of people that show up at Matthew's house are a bunch of sinners, There are a bunch of people that normally nobody would ever want to hang out with, especially if you were kind of a religious person that day. You wouldn't spend time with these people. You wouldn't be caught dead with these people. You wouldn't want a picture of you floating around Facebook with these types of people because these are the type of people that everybody avoided because they were liabilities. But here's Jesus. He goes to Matthew's house and has a party with them. We're actually told a little bit later that what happens are the religious leaders come to Jesus and they're like, I can't believe this. Why are you sitting down eating and drinking with these people? So what's Jesus doing? He's drinking wine with them. He's eating good food with them. He's laughing with them. He's enjoying the presence their company. That's exactly what's happening. right? Read the text. That's exactly what's taking place. Jesus is actually engaging in a party with these people. Now, is he sinning? Is Jesus getting drunk? No, not at all. Jesus, Jesus never got drunk. Some of the things you, you guys need to know a little bit about, like wine in the New Testament. Some religious people come along and say you can't drink wine. The Bible just simply says, I would say this as well, is that drinking wine is not a sin. Getting drunk is a sin if you're under age 21. Because we abide by the laws of the land, we want to abide by those laws out of respect to the leaders that God puts in place. If you're under 21, you shouldn't be drinking. But the reality is, Jesus drank. You can drink in a way if it's honorable, if it's a way that brings glory to God, if it's a way in which you can enjoy it and give thanks to God for all good things. One of the things as well is that we don't want to drink if it's going to cause someone to offend. So if you're in a community group or hanging out with a group of people and you know that maybe someone there struggles with alcoholism, out of love you would say, I don't want to drink because I don't want to stumble that person. I don't want to somehow cause that person to be offended by that. So out of love, you are willing to pull away from a particular liberty, but the reality is is that it's not a sin to drink. Here's Jesus in a house, in a party, with a bunch of sinful people. One of them is redeemed. His name is Matthew. And they're having a party. They're enjoying each other's company and presence. Really, at the end of the day, this is what a community group is. It's redeemed sinners and sinners and Jesus all together. Usually centered around a meal. That's what a community group is. The very first thing Matthew does when he meets Jesus is he starts a community group. doesn't have a lot to give, but what he does have is he's got a nice house. Well, he skimmed it off of the people of Israel, and in his mind, his renewed mind, redeemed mind, he's like, you know what? I've become rich of all these people. Least thing I can do is throw a party and invite Jesus. So that's what he does. Jesus comes and hangs out with them. This is really what a community group is. It's a bunch of people that are sinners, some are redeemed sinners, and Jesus shows up, up, and you end up hanging out with Jesus. This is why we as a church really find it very important to be about community groups. There's certain things that we do here on Sunday mornings, Sunday nights that we do, we get together, we hang out, we worship corporately as a big body. There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that come together here on Sunday morning. We love to worship. We love to spend time with each other. We love to hear God's word preached. There's certain elements that just simply can't get done on a Sunday morning or Sunday night because there are so many people. So what we do is we gather throughout the week. The Early Church did this. They gathered in large gatherings, large buildings, large groups. They worshiped publicly. They sang songs together. They studied God's word together. And then they scattered. And when they scattered, they met from house to house. They went to other people's houses. They hung out. They spent time. They ate meals. They prayed with each other. They studied God's word on a smaller level. They got to be in each other's lives. That's what Matthew does. He invites people over. This is why We would encourage you because some of you look at your lives and think, I don't really have that much to offer. Well, if you have a dorm room, if you have a house, if you have some time and you're willing and capable and able of gathering together some people, some sinners, maybe some aren't sinners, you know, some of them are just redeemed sinners, meaning the Christians, some non-Christians, you get them together. Maybe you don't even know each other all that well. Maybe they're just simply acquaintances, the way maybe Matthew had these people in his life that were maybe just acquaintances. Maybe some of them don't really like you, but the reality is, your goal is to get people together so that you can meet with Jesus together, to see what Jesus will do in their life. And Jesus shows up. I'll tell you a little bit about my his my story. When I first became a Christian, um, the very first thing that I did was I got involved in a small little group, a small little Bible study. It was at the house of a uh, family. A guy, his name was Mike, and his wife's name was Sandy. They had a daughter about my age. I was, I don't know, sophomore, junior in high school, and that was about it. I showed up at their house all the time. I was very into it. I was, it was really the first place in that small group that I learned how to study the Bible. I learned, I was able to ask questions. There's a lot of things I didn't really understand. I was brought up in Roman Catholicism, so I had some sort of understanding about, about God, There was a lot of things I didn't quite know. So I needed someone to ask questions to. That community group was a place where I was able to ask those questions. It was really the place that I learned how to to pray for the first time. I didn't know how to pray. I didn't know what it was all about. It seemed kind of weird to me. Even though I, I grew up kind of religious, I didn't know what praying was all about. I learned how to sing songs to Jesus. That was very weird to me when I first walked in. I saw a group of people singing songs together. It didn't make a lot of sense to me. There was a beauty about it. I didn't quite understand it. But it was in a small group small group of people, maybe 12, that when they sang, I was able to enter in and sing. It was beautiful for me. In fact, it was in that small group that I got my very first Bible. And some of us might look at that and be like, I don't have the time. I don't have the ability. I don't have the house. I don't have the commitment to really pour out to these types of people. Look, the reality is, is this. Some of you, have, maybe if you've led small groups or you've been in a small group before, you always have one or two people that tend to kind of be extra needy are the ones that sometimes show up really early, right, or the ones that show up or stay very, very late, all right, that was me, that was me, I was the guy, I'd show up at like five o'clock, the, you know, Sandy, she had the vacuum in her hand, she's, you know, her hair's all up in, you know, curlers or whatever, and she's just like, hey, what's up, Brian, you're early, like, oh, I am, I didn't even notice, Ah, I guess it doesn't start for two more hours, can I come in? Like, I would invite myself in, right? So I was like, you know, 16 years old. I'm like, can I come in? She's like, I guess, yeah, that's cool, I guess. You know, so I'd be like, all right, you know, do you have anything to drink? Like, yeah, I'll just keep back. and I'm like hanging out. And she's like, oh, well, we're going to eat dinner. I'm like, sweet, I'm stoked. Like, I'd be happy to stay for dinner. She's like, okay, that's not really what I meant. But all right, that's cool. I'll throw out a plate. And, you know, so I'd hang out. there, totally oblivious, like 17 years old oftentimes are. And I was just oblivious, but I just absorbed it drank it all in. It was amazing. And, then, you know, at the end of the night, the thing would be over like 9 o'clock, 9.30. You know, it's like 10 o'clock, 10.30. I'm still there. You know, the husband would be like, oh, like sending all these like nonverbal signals like, oh my goodness, look at the time. Wow, I got to be up really early in the morning and get to work. and be like, oh, that's a bummer. All right, I'll pray for you, you know, and like, that's cool. He'd be like, okay, it's not getting the hint. Like, I guess I'm going to go to bed right now. Be like, okay, I'll lock up. All right, I'll make sure the lights are out. Like, uh, no, actually that means you've got to leave now. Oh, okay, all right, I'll leave. So that was me, all right? I was, I was into it. But here's the reality, all right? These people had no idea. I was just some annoying 17-year-old kid that kind of abused my time there and ate a lot of their food and absorbed a lot of stuff from them. And, you know, there was no way they could have ever gotten that back. But here's the point. They had no idea that the life that they were pouring into was one day going to end up not only, you know, start walking with Jesus, but was going to end up pastoring a church and leading a church. They had no idea of knowing that. They had no idea of knowing that. So my point is this, is what I love about them is they were willing to just take on liabilities. They were willing to take on people like myself. It was nothing more than just costing them. Costing them food, costing them time, costing them gray hairs. That's all I was doing to them. But at the same time, I was using them in my life to transform me. It was the, it was, they were the very first couple that I saw that loved Jesus. I didn't see couples that loved Jesus before my parents had divorced a couple years earlier. So for me to actually see a couple that loved Jesus, that were committed to God, committed to God's word, committed to just serving the Lord together as a family, that literally left an indelible impression in my life. Where, you know, years later, my wife and I look at her like, we want to be like Sandy and Mike. They were amazing. We love these people. I'm thankful for these people. They were like Levi, willing to say, look, all I have is a house and a lot of acquaintances, and I want to use my house, what I have, and invite people over and let them meet Jesus. That's really what it's all about. That's all that we're simply saying, is that if you can look at your life like that and just say, I might not have a lot to give, because some of you might look at yourself and think, I'm not a teacher, I can't lead a Bible study, again, for some of you, you can be trained to do that. You feel like there's a gift there. We want to train you. We want to help you to be that. For others of you, you just have the gift of hospitality. You have a house. Because let me flip this all around on the other side. What would happen if you got to a place in your life where, I mean, the reality is most of us in America, especially most of us in California, we have this mentality that we basically want a house. We want to create some sort of a zone, a space that basically becomes a false functional heaven. We want it to be organized. We want it to be orderly. We want it to be clean. We don't ever want it to be soiled. We definitely don't want people that are going to come over to track in dirt and cause chaos in our little false functional heaven. But let me ask you this what would happen if you got to the end of your life and you have this nice beautiful house with a big dining room table and not one person ever came to meet Jesus at your dining room table? What a tragedy. Levi was the exact opposite. He's like, all I have is a house a lot of money skimmed off of all these people i met jesus i'm changed i redeemed i'm redeemed i want to invite all my friends that don't know god yet i'm going to bring them here they're the type of people that all the religious people run from they don't want to talk to they walk on the other side of the street they avoid but jesus doesn't seem to do that because jesus seems to speak dignity to those of us that are undignified this is the gospel this is why this is good news That Jesus is on a mission. And his mission actually defines the type of friends that he has. Liabilities, all of them. Jesus' mission actually determines the way in which he spends his time. That Jesus actually is always making time for people that are broken, that are hurting. If you're on the same mission as Jesus, your time will look very similar right? It doesn't mean that, you know, you don't, you don't go to school, you work hard, and you strive hard. It doesn't mean that you pay special attention, and you make sure that your business, it means that, it doesn't mean that there are no other driving forces or passions in your life, but it means that every other driving passion and force is actually subordinated to this overall driving mission of Jesus. It means that if you're a business owner, say, for example, or you're somebody that one day is going to be an entrepreneur, someday, you know, run something, or, you know, be a mom, it means that even that mission of being a mom or that mission of being a teacher, that mission of being a politician actually runs with some sort of congruency with the overarching mission of the gospel. Can you imagine a politician hanging out with prostitutes and like realizing that these are people in his district that actually need the most help? And not for some funky weird business going on after hours? Like That would shock people. I don't think that happens. But can you imagine if we thought differently about our vocations? We thought differently about our subordinated callings and vocations and things of that nature in light of the overarching drive and passion of the mission that Jesus himself was on. So again, first of all, we see that Jesus' mission defined his relationships. Secondly, we see that it determined how and where he would spend his time. And then thirdly, what I want to take a look at is it ultimately draws his opposition. All right, so Jesus... On this mission, following God, doing what God calls him to do, ultimately draws his opposition. We see verses 16 and 17. It says, "And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, "Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners?" And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, "Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." So here's Jesus hanging out at this party. He's enjoying his time with these people. He's laughing. He's joyful. He's doing exactly what his mission was to do, which was to take people that knew that they were broken, take people that knew they were completely ostracized or marginalized or pushed out into the margins of culture and society. Jesus is hanging out with these people. They're all liabilities, every single one of them. And they all know it, and they all recognize, Jesus, for you to hang out with us is a risk to you. But to Jesus, he doesn't care. He has no risk. He has nothing to lose, does he? Actually, he's got everything to lose, and that's part, of Ma- uh, that's part of Mark's whole story. He's got everything to lose. He will lose everything by the time the whole story is done, but he will regain it all back, and that's the beauty of this king. Matthew's telling us the story of a king, but this king is a king that's willing to take radical uh, steps in his life to secure the benefit of those that are marginalized, to secure the blessing of those that everybody else rejects and pushes off into the margins of culture and society. Jesus goes to these people. How? Why? At great expense to himself, because all of them are liabilities. Matthew, Mark, John, Peter, James, Andrew, Bartholomew, uh, Nathaniel, all of these guys that would follow Jesus, all of them, all right? You can put your name in that same list as well. Every single one of us are nothing but liabilities to Jesus. Yet, out of grace, out of kindness, and at great expense to himself, he calls us. He doesn't just call us. He befriends us. And this brings about great opposition by the religious leaders. Because they look at this and they think, Jesus, you shouldn't be doing this. How can you, if you are, you know, quote unquote, a holy man of God, or how can you, if you're a good gifted itinerant preacher from God, how can you be doing this, hanging out with the people that we deemed unholy? And it was at this point that really what ends up happening from really this point forward in Mark's account, Mark's gospel, that Jesus now becomes the target and the frustration and the anger of all of these religious leaders. Because what Jesus is doing in their mind is Jesus is breaking all the rules. Now, that being said, Jesus never violated the Torah. Never disobeyed it. But he violated all of the traditions of the religious leaders. They had all these traditions. They had all these religious rules around who you can hang out with, who you can spend time with, who you can talk to, who you can touch, who you can hang out with. And Jesus breaks them all. Because Jesus, again, had a mission. His mission was to seek and save those that were broken, those that were hurting, those that were lost. That was Jesus' mission. And obviously this came in direct conflict in contradiction to the religious leaders who basically their mission was to secure their power and their connection with the temple and to secure their positions as religious leaders. And Jesus comes as a threat. You've got to understand this. Jesus will always come as a threat to your kingdom all the time this is one of the reasons why a lot of times people get offended by Jesus it's funny because you can look at Jesus you can dislike Jesus but you cannot ignore him I mean this is the reality of Jesus you can look at him and be like ah, I'm confused by him why does he do this Why does Jesus make these certain choices? So you can disagree overall with who Jesus is and his ministry and what he does and everything else about him, but you can't ignore him. And usually whenever we find ourselves in conflict with Jesus, it's because what's happening is his kingdom is pressing against ours and there's conflict. That's exactly what happened with his religious leaders. Jesus' kingdom was advancing. People's lives are being changed. The marginalized, the broken, those who were you know thought of as being nothing more than you know just kindling for hell Jesus was actually giving them dignity and value and respect back whom the religious leaders had already written off saying no they're undignified they're to be disrespected they're to be shunned Jesus says no I won't shun them and I won't disrespect them and I won't write them off in fact I will befriend them you can't do that Jesus they're evil Jesus says, I will take their evil upon myself, and I will pay the price for them so that they can be clean. That's something that God says. Jesus is like, I am God. We need to kill you, Jesus. That was the ministry of Jesus' life. Conflict. Opposition. We want to be God. No, I'm God, Jesus would say. Your kingdom contradicts our kingdom. Yeah, but my kingdom will overcome your kingdom what happens if if you find yourself tonight in conflict with jesus it's not because jesus is bad it's because you have an idea of what your kingdom should be like of the way that your life should be lived and you find yourself in conflict with the king who has authority who has power but even greater than all that who's got great love He's able to take people that are at enmity with him and turn them into disciples and friends, and even greater than friends, sons and daughters. That's what Jesus is doing here. That's what we see in his life. So Jesus' mission also draws this sense of opposition. See, Jesus really was on this mission. And what was it that made Jesus on this mission? Really, it was God. That was the answer. Jesus says, I was sent by the Father into this world to be an ambassador. I'm here to tell people about what God's like. And by the end of Jesus' life, like I said earlier, Jesus actually draws, gathers together all of his disciples and he says, look, in the same way that God sent me to you to give you dignity, value, and respect and demonstrate kindness and grace to you, in the same way, so I send you. So you go out and you raise the leper. You give sight to the blind. You give dignity and value and respect to those whom society has written off. Why? Because that's what I've done for you. Do you know that? Do you know what God's done for you? Has that impacted you? Has that affected you? Or are you just in a religion? Is Christianity just some sort of a way of life? This is one of the interesting things about Christianity. There's a lot of people that would look at Christianity and be like, it's a nice religion. It's kind of cool. It can be kind of oppressive. It's been oppressive throughout the ages. I mean, the argument is always think about the Crusades, Spanish Inquisition, yada, yada, yada. Of course... All of those things happen and all of those things are desperately shameful. But It's not because of Jesus. It's because you have a bunch of men who have hijacked Jesus, who have hijacked Jesus' name, who have hijacked Christianity and they were seeking to establish their own kingdom under the banner of Jesus. But you come to Jesus and you begin to realize he's not like that. That's not who he is. His name, his title... This authority has been hijacked by people that are still seeking to establish their own kingdom. They have a mission. But see, the reality is that we can't just simply look at everybody else out there and say they, because the reality is in here. It's not them. It's not people from a different, you know, age in history. It's us. This is us. This is our problem. This is the way that we live. We tend to be missionaries representing our own special interests. This is how we live. It's the way we all act. We are all in a mission. And our mission, at the end of the day, if you strip away all of the other characteristic traits of our particular or nuances of our mission, at the end of the day, for the most part, our mission is really about ourselves. It's about establishing our greatness or establishing our strength or establishing our comfort or establishing whatever about ourselves. For the most part, one of the things that you'll find or discover as a common denominator in all of these things, it actually centers around each one of us. That's why we have conflict with each other. What we are actually seeing on the news, whenever there's a war, whenever there's war between nations, whenever there's some sort of a, you know, domestic dispute, or a boyfriend beats up his girlfriend, or something happens in the news, what you're seeing is two kingdoms colliding, two kingdoms clashing, one kingdom trying to usurp the authority of another kingdom, one mission trying to overthrow another mission, and you have conflict. It either results in death some sort of domestic dispute, but the same thing happens between us and God. And so what we see with regard to Jesus is that because really for the most part, because we substitute ourselves in God's place, God comes and he substitutes himself in our place. Because we've taken upon ourselves things that only God deserves, God has come and taken upon himself the things that only we deserve. He takes our wrath Our penalty. He takes the trajectory of where our kingdom, our mission will end up inevitably taking us, which is death and brokenness and darkness. The king, the good king, the true king, comes into this world on a mission, a rescue mission, to a bunch of people that are on their own death-ridden mission to take us from death to bring us into life. That's what this king is all about. I want to finish with this. How do you know if your mission, the mission of your life, what defines you, the overarching, over-driving passions of your life, how do you know if those things are consistent with Jesus' mission? There's three things. First of all, joy. Joy defines you. It defines your mission. One of the things that you see with Jesus is that he was joyful. Someone would say, well, wait a minute, I thought he was a man acquainted with sorrows and grief. Yes, he was. There was a time when Jesus would ultimately suffer and die. There were moments in Jesus' life when the uh, shadow of the cross came over him and he was overwhelmed with great grief and sorrow because he knew exactly what that was all about. But Hebrews 12 actually gives us some insight into the overarching drive and passion of Jesus' life. It says this, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He was able to actually go into the shadow, not just the shadow, but climb onto the cross, enduring the pain, experiencing the excruciation and the separation of God, His own Father, because there was a joy that was driving Him. And that joy that was driving Him was knowing that one day He would take people that were at once at enmity with God and bring them into relationship with God. That Jesus had this joy. That's what drove him. That's what compelled him. One of the things that you'll know if that you are on the same mission as Jesus is you have joy in your life. That doesn't mean that there are moments where things get hard, you become sad, you become overwhelmed, you become discouraged. That will definitely happen as it happened with Jesus. But let me ask you, is there a driving joy in your life that sustains you, that undergirds everything about your life? Paul the Apostle. He was on a mission. He was on the same mission that Jesus was on. Paul's mission was to take Jesus to the nations. Jew or Gentile, it didn't matter. Paul was like, I'm I'm, I'm game for everybody. Anybody that wants to give me an opportunity to talk, I'll talk to them. One of the letters that Paul wrote prior to his death was a letter called Philippians. In uh, in the letter to Philippians, Paul was actually writing that from a prison cell. From a prison cell. There's no other letter in the entire New Testament that uses the word joy than the letter Philippians. Like, how does that happen? How does somebody who's in prison, now, don't think prisons today are like, prisons back then are like prisons today. They weren't, all right? They were nasty, disgusting places that had all, infested with all sorts of nastiness, and that's where Paul was, writing from this prison cell, speaking of joy. How is that possible? Because Paul was on Jesus' mission. See, some of us, we look at our lives and we're like, I don't have any more joy. The reason why is one of two reasons is either A, you're a Christian and you've forgotten what the mission's about. You've settled for religion. you settled back into the default mode. What's happened is you become religious again. I'll give you an example. You come to church, you're like, sermon's too long. I don't like the way the pastor looks. The music's not very good. I'm upset because they don't have coffee. How dare a church not have coffee? It's very frustrating. Uh, You know, there's all sorts of things that you can look at. And you complain about and get frustrated about it. The reason why that happens, the reason why you have no joy, is because you lost focus of the mission. You actually somehow thought that church is about having good coffee. Now, I'm into good coffee. I love coffee. It's my favorite. All right? It's the first thing I do every single morning is I make a good cup of coffee. And every morning, it's like my ritual. And I love it. It's enjoying. It's, it's full of joy for me. I love it. But the reality is, is that... The mission is not about coffee. The mission is about souls. Now, if souls and coffee can go together, that would be amazing too. But the point that I'm making is this, is that if you have come into a place where you have lost joy, it's because you've lost focus of the mission. Or you're not a Christian, and the mission that you're on right now is a shallow mission. It's a mission that's centered for yourself, centered around yourself. You're the chief leader of everything. Everything is with you in mind as an end in and of itself. And what happens is at some point you get to a place in your life where you realize there's nothing greater, nothing bigger, nothing outside of you to make sacrifices for, to live for, to hold on to, to embrace. The thing that you actually thought was going to set you free has actually become your prison. And you've found that in that prison there's no joy. There's no light at the end of that tunnel. You're in a place that the Bible would describe as darkness or death. What you need is you need to see Jesus calling, inviting you into his mission the way Jesus called and invited Levi into his mission. So joy, first of all. The second thing that we see that would define you is power. Power. Power really to be a blessing. That's what God calls us to. So if you're on Jesus' mission, you have power. That doesn't mean that there's going to be moments you get weak. But the power that you have is power to actually be a blessing. I'll give you an example. Uh, Isaiah the prophet. The first five chapters of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah basically pronounces all of these woes upon Israel and Judah and all of these other nations that have failed to obey and follow God. By the time you get get to chapter 6, Isaiah has this incredible vision of God. He sees God. He has this vision. God's high and lifted up. God's glory fills the entire temple. There's smoke and all sorts of stuff that just absolutely fills the senses of of Isaiah. And all of a sudden, Isaiah falls on his face. And rather than announcing and pronouncing all these woes upon everybody else, he begins to look at himself in light of God's glory and says, woe is me. It's not Israel that has unclean lips. It's me who has unclean lips. It's not Judah who is sinful. It's me who's sinful. It's not the rest of the world that needs to change and repent. It's me that needs to repent and change. And Isaiah cries out, like, who will clean me? And all of a sudden, God sends an angel to Isaiah that cleanses his lips and purifies him. And all of a sudden, the voice comes out. It's God speaking. He says, I have a mission. My mission is to send somebody who will go to the nations, who will tell them about my judgment, tell them about my ways, But God goes on to say, he adds this sort of little addendum, this little marginal side note. He says, the problem is, whoever goes on this mission and preaches the message that I I have them to share, nobody will respond, nobody will listen. It will be a fruitless mission. Who will go? And Isaiah raises his newly sanctified hand and he says, I'll go. Isaiah, it's a bomb mission. You won't succeed. Nothing good will happen. I'll go. How is it possible for a guy to go on a bomb mission knowing that he won't succeed? Can you imagine, like, leading a Bible study to a bunch of people for 30 years and not one convert? Like, that was Isaiah. How is it possible for him to say, I'll go? Because he saw God and what empowered him was God touching his lips and cleansing him. And therefore, he was able to say, "I'm, I'm on this mission. I want to join. I want in. Let me say, if you have never felt in your life taxed beyond any ability to pay back, if you've never interacted with people in your life to the point where they have taken so much from you, so much energy, so much strength, so much mental anguish, maybe even so much money from you, have you've never been to the place in your life where you've looked at your life and said, I don't have anything else to give. I need to tap out. I can't keep going. I can't keep moving this way. If You've never been at that place in your life. I don't think you've ever been on the same mission that Jesus is on. If your life has always been situated in such a way where you're just giving out of your abundance, you're just giving what you have, and you cater and control and and kind of manage your life in such a way where everything is clean and neat and perfect and pristine and nobody's tracking mud into your house and you're not losing any sleep over the fact that, you know, people around you are taking so much energy from you that you don't have anything else to give and you're crying out to God, God, give me help, God, give me strength, God, give me money because I don't have any more resources to pay for this. You probably have never been on that mission of Jesus because that was Jesus' mission all the time. Always gathering liabilities around him. Always spending time with people that are marginalized. Always spending time with people that are more demanding upon him. That's, that, that's the life that Jesus calls us to. But here's, here's the reality. Because some of us are like, well, how can I do that? How can I keep giving myself away? The answer is actually found in an Old Testament book where God answers and he says, it's not by might. It's not by power. It's by my spirit. God says, I will promise one day to give you my spirit, he will live in you, and he will carry out the mission for you. I'll be really honest with you. I've been doing this for 18 years. I, when my wife and I first moved up here, we knew beyond any question or shadow of a doubt that we were called, that God like, spoke to us, not verbally, but God spoke to us and told us, move to San Luis, plant a church. <laughs> there have been so many times I would have been glad to walk across the street and get a job at Trader Joe's and say bye. Like I would have been happy to do that. But the reality is like if I did that, I would be in direct disobedience to God. And the problem is that there are moments where I look at my life and think I don't have anything else to give. Like I'm I'm taxed. I have nothing left. People take they don't give people take and then they criticize. It's taxing. It's taxing upon my life emotionally upon my health physically, upon my wallet, upon everything. It's taxing. But what ends up happening is that if you begin to think that this mission that you're on is about you somehow mustering enough strength to do this and you've lost sight of that mission, the mission is that Jesus gives you power to keep doing it. He gives you joy in the midst of it. And the last thing is this, is that we see it also has to do with holiness. John chapter 17 says this, As you sent me into the world, Jesus is praying to his Father. He says, As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself so that they also may be sanctified in the truth. What Jesus is actually saying is that the mission that Jesus sends us on and our personal holiness are actually linked. They're linked, they're united. That Jesus actually cares about our holiness, He cares about the way that we live. He actually does. And perhaps, it's kind of an interesting thing, but we live in a world where, man, we've got all these techniques and means and programs and ways that we can kind of tap into and figure out, you know, how to grow a church and do all these things and reach the world and reach the lost. But it's kind of funny to me in some ironic way that we live in a world where we are not in any way deprived of any form of communication, but there are people living across the street from us that don't know Jesus, it's amazing. I still meet people that actually come into this church. I'm like, have you ever heard about Jesus before? They're like, no, but a roommate invited me. I don't really know anything about Jesus. Really? Nothing. It's amazing. Good on your roommate. That's awesome. They're being a good missionary. They're living a holy life in front of you. That's good. At the end of the day, people don't care about how good the preacher is at church. They really don't. They really don't care. What they care about is your holiness, your life. If you're a Christian, what type of a message are you sending to them? See, some of us send kind of these muddled messages. Like God's good, but then we go out and we, we live some sort of lifestyle that is not good. It doesn't represent, it doesn't reflect who God is. We're sending a very confusing message. And Jesus says, listen, if you're a missionary, the way that you live says a lot, more than sometimes even your words. Is there oftentimes confusion what holiness is? Yes, absolutely. The religious leaders were totally confused over what holiness was. In their mind, they thought holiness was a list of rules, of regulations, of do's and don'ts. They thought the rules of holiness were, if you're going to be a holy guy, you don't hang out with a bunch of you know, women with clear heels. You don't hang out with a bunch of you know, meth heads. You don't hang out with a bunch of people that are pedophiles. You don't add those people to your list because if you do, then you become unholy. And what Jesus is saying is that, no, you've completely missed the whole concept of what holiness is. Holiness is not just simply an action, it's a person. Jesus is holy. Holiness is about your conformity, your transformation into the life of Jesus. It matters. So I want to finish with this thought by asking you this question. What mission are you on? What defines your life? Do you have joy? Do you have power in that mission? The mission that Jesus calls us to is actually a really powerful mission. It's a life-changing mission. It's actually a satisfying mission. My life's hard, to be honest with you. I mean, being a pastor, it's very taxing, but there's nothing else that I'd, I'd want to do. I mean, yeah, there's, like I said, there's moments that are tough, but at the end of the day, my wife and I, when we kind of regroup, when we sync up, and we kind of get our minds back in line with God, and we think about what God has put us in and allowed us to be participants of, we wouldn't trade this for anything. This is so joy-giving to my wife and I. Like, every, every week we have some point where we just talk about, we share stories of what God's doing in your lives, and it reinvigorates us. It keeps us moving forward. It's joy that keeps us empowered to keep going on, and it's that type of stuff that motivates me and says, I don't, I don't want to somehow break this. I want to be holy. I don't want to do some stupid thing that oftentimes pastors can do. I want to be holy. I want a lifestyle that represents my Savior, my Jesus, who's good, so that people can know Him. So what mission are you on? Secondly, if you're not a Christian, like Levi was approached by Jesus, I want you to hear Jesus actually call you. He calls you to rise, to leave your life, the thing that you think will actually bring you fulfillment and joy, to leave that behind, to come follow Him. What mission are you on? I propose that the mission that Jesus calls us to is the only life-giving mission. Everything else pales. Everything else is not life-giving. Everything else will actually end up leading to a path of death if you make that your master goal in your life. We're going to respond, and we're going to sing. We'll worship. We'll confess sin to God. We'll partake of communion. For some of us, we'll give joyfully. We've got little donation boxes that you guys can give your tithes and your offerings to the Lord too, just in the privacy of your own heart between you and God, that's for you to do that before the Lord. We will worship, we'll sing, and we'll respond to God. Invite you to be a part of that. Invite you to consider what mission you're on in your life. To surrender your life to God's mission. To allow your life to basically be transformed by this good King who left all things for you. To redeem you, to restore you. And in turn, we have this amazing opportunity to do the same thing with our lives and actually find great joy in doing so. I'll pray, we'll sing, we'll give, we'll confess, we'll partake of communion together. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the work, the miracle that you've done in our lives. We don't deserve it. All of us, like Matthew, Levi, God, we are social and moral lepers. That's what we are. We're repugnant in so many ways. And yet, Jesus, we thank you that you were not ashamed to call us. You were not ashamed, like Levi, to give him dignity and value and respect back, even though he didn't deserve it. But you gave it to him because out of your power, out of your strength, out of your might, you were able to do that. And in the same way, you do the same thing to us. You give us our dignity, our dignity, our value, and our respect back. You raise us up. You give us life. You show us grace. Not by sweeping our sin under the rug, not by ignoring it, not by turning a blind eye to it, but by taking our sin upon yourself. God, we are liabilities, which means we cause a great expense. But Jesus, you took that expense upon yourself, and on the cross you bore it. That was the expense that you bore for us, to set us free. So God, I got to pray that you would just humble us before yourself and that in response we would worship and confess and love you back. Not because we have to, not because it's our duty, but because we get to and we love to. We are moved and motivated by the great love and kindness that you've shown to us.